Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And to begin with, let me answer those fellow saloners who have asked if there is going to be any more podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon 1.0. <laughs> and I'm pleased to tell you that, uh, yes, there is much more to come. But for the past three weeks, I've been, uh, well, I've been on my somewhat regular summer goofing off period. However, uh, thanks to Lex Pelger and the team at Symposia, I've been able to post several news podcasts in the interim. Unlike my silences in years past, when this summer lethargy creeps up on me. You know, today it seems like a lot of people are so tightly wired to, well, to their phones and their work and to the pressure uh, to be what their friends and family think they should be. Well, they don't take enough time to just goof off once in a while. Now, in my case, of course... Having grown up in the 1940s and 1950s, it was much easier to step out of the normal flow of daily routine because our technology was less intense. When a friend and I would play a board game like chess or checkers, it was, well, it was calm, slow, and a gentle time to relax. And as much as I would have wanted to have today's technology available to me back then, Well, I'm kind of glad that I didn't have the stress of competing in violent video games and getting enough likes on my social media page. But that said, I clearly remember many, many days when I'd tell my mother that I was bored. Her answer was always the same. Then go outside and play. (laughs) So, uh, which childhood experience is best? Who knows? I certainly don't. And so, uh, having left you with that imposing question, it's time for me to move along and pass the microphone to Lex Pelger, who will introduce today's interview with Dr. Thomas Roberts, author of The Psychedelic Future of the Mind, How Entheogens Are Enhancing Cognition, Boosting Intelligence, and Raising Values, which is something that you and I, quite obviously, find very interesting. Today's show is made possible through your crowdfunded support on Patreon. Unlike other crowdfunding sites, Patreon lets you chip in a few bucks a month to help us keep the lights on. Find out more at patreon.com slash symposia. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Dr. Thomas Roberts is surely one of those magical professors that you'd never forget. He's got a white walrus mustache, likes to wear suspenders, and has a beautiful collection of drug books. He wrote the book, The Psychedelic Future of the Mind, How Entheogens Are Enhancing Cognition, Boosting Intelligence, and Raising Values. It's some of the most forward-thinking work in the field today, and he's an old soul who knows how to talk to millennials. If you enjoy this interview with Dr. Tom Roberts, I recommend checking out any of his material on YouTube about psychotechnologies. (laughs) 
I am very pleased to be sitting here with Dr. Thomas Roberts. Welcome to DeKalb. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a great town. Uh, you've been teaching here a long time, correct? I, I started in 1970. Wow. And I thought I'd come for one year or possibly two. There I am. <laughs> Retired now, but still here. Yeah. What were some of the classes that you enjoyed teaching the most here? Well, basically, I was an educational psychologist, and I taught undergraduates who were going to become high school teachers, and, uh, and then as years went by, more and more graduates who were already teachers or principals already active in schools. And then I started my psychedelics course in 1981. 81 to yeah. start a psychedelics course, right when Reagan's at his top. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, when you look back at it, it's sort of odd that I was able to do so, but it worked out all right. Yeah. And I taught it, um, I think, probably through 2013 or 2014. That's a long run. How did that course change over the time of doing it so long? When I, when I started, there was almost no new research in the field. And it was all looking backwards, <clears throat> although um, a couple of books had come out in seventy. I used Stan Groff's Realms of the Human Unconscious. And um, Grinspoon and Bacalar had two books, uh, Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered and Psychedelic Reflections. And those were basically the newest. And, of course, um, Doors of Perception. I always started with Doors. That's a wonderful inter introduction. He talked on, on all the topics we covered in course. And, of course, being a literary man, it was a literary book, and people could read it without a scientific background. That's great. Have you found anything else that equals Huxley's writing on what the new psychedelic paradigm might look like? No. Um, I mean, everybody touches on it one way or another. But Huxley, basically, that's, that's really just one article. It's the length of a long article in The New Yorker. I mean, the whole book is, is 70 pages. Um, well, everybody comes up with new... The stuff going on at Johns Hopkins, for example, isn't really new in its content, except it's confirming a lot of what Huxley and other people talked about, basically the importance of mystical experiences. And then, of course, I mean, there's the discovery of Ibogaine and ayahuasca that was basically unknown in, in the 1980s. I mean, in this culture, unknown. So, I mean, all that stuff is new. And then, well, DM2, ADMT also was, was known at that time. So, and, um, I mean, of course, if you count Shulgin's books, there are like a couple hundred chemicals waiting to be tried out. Yeah. Um, how did you incorporate all of these new plant medicines and drugs coming into the consciousness as you were teaching this course? Um, it really wasn't hard at all. Um, I didn't take a very biological perspective because my students had no basic biological background. And we <clears throat> would talk about the implications, let's say, of Stan Groff's ideas for understanding one's own mind and one's own experiences. Um, particularly his perinatal stage was very helpful in people understanding how they reacted to their own psychedelic experiences. Although actually very few students had psychedelic experiences. When my class was a seminar in the honors program, it was 15 or 20 students and probably three had had psychedelic experiences. So <laughs> once I taught it for the, general <laughs> for the general students and everybody thought it was going to be just sort of a, a a drug, you know, Mickey Mouse course, and they didn't like it because I had them write <laughs> papers and give reports and do all all the student kind of stuff. But the honor students liked it. Oh, that's great. That's fascinating. So it wasn't a bunch of heads who were coming to you. It was serious students who were curious about these tools. Yeah, and my perspective basically is that these are tools that should be used in psychotherapy, okay, and, you know, don't drop them on your own on Saturday afternoon. Um, 
And also, then, as Stan Groff's book really talked about psychotherapy, and then when the research started to come on from NYU and Johns Hopkins and places like that, then there was, like, really good, you know, psychopharmacological writing, which one could read without being a psychopharmacologist. And um, um, basically, it's a very open-minded group. An advantage of teaching my honor seminar, of course, there are honor students, so they're either very bright or very dedicated or both. Hmm. Okay, so they would do their assignments, in other words. Okay, <laughs> and and they were they came from different majors because they're all juniors or seniors, so they could bring in whatever insights came from their field so they could talk about. I've been surprised. One, I was particularly surprised. They had a woman who was studying dietetics. I thought, well, well, good. You know, I'm glad to have her in class. But we were talking about MAO inhibitors, and she looked through the dietetics research and discovered two foods that were MAO inhibitors. Turmeric, which is used in Italian cooking, and the outside of nutmeg, which is called na- mace, but it's not the spray, you know, sort of thing. And so, you know, I pick up stuff from my students too. Um, the only ones that really were a problem were engineering students. Um, chemical engineering, of course, would fit in perfectly, but other engineering students. I mean, they were good students, but there was no application that they could see. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, they're an odd bunch. That's what I started off school in. No. <laughs> now, what did uh, what about your story of coming to these these drugs initially? What what drew you in? Do you want the long version or the short version? I'd like the long version. <laughs> okay. I, I like your story. I've, yeah. <laughs> okay. I was a graduate student um, in education at the University of Connecticut um, from nineteen sixty five, six and seven, and this is when Leary was having trouble at Harvard, and it was. I didn't have TV, but I had the radio, and I picked it up here and there, and I sent for a copy of, I think it was the Harvard Review, that had an article in it or by him, and that's the first I read about it. I wish I still had it, um, but I was not interested myself. And then um, I, I drove to Stanford in the summer of 67, um, which is the, you know, the, the famous summer of 67. Um, but I was going to get a doctorate in educational psychology and an MBA minor. So I wasn't really going to the hippie events. But it was fun to drive to San Francisco. My car radio would play, you know, when you go to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. So I had that sort of of feeling, but it wasn't for me, but it was fun to be there. And then at Stanford, um, of course, there are a scattering of students doing psychedelics, but I didn't really know any of them until... I was, well, I did my dissertation on Maslow's needs hierarchy. And there was a professor, Bill Harmon, or Willis Harmon, in engineering economic systems who had been doing some research on Maslow. So I wanted to take a class with him. And um, he also was the person who got Jim Fadiman going. So that's Jim and Mike, sort of common professor. Wow. And um, he taught a course called The Human Potential. And it was so popular that you had to sign up two quarters in advance to get in. So finally I got in, because I was interested in Maslow, and it was graduate students from Stanford from all kinds of different majors. And he would look at things like parapsychology and meditation, biofeedback, Eastern religions, things that were sort of really fringe at the time. You wouldn't want to say you were interested in those. But one day um, a married student couple came into the class, and started describing their psychedelic experience the previous weekend. 
Now, my idea of psychedelics, picture the DEA picture of a drug addict, right? Terrible long hair and long fingernails and look real scraggy. Okay, and these were graduate students in Stanford who didn't look like that at all and talked very coherently. So this didn't fit in with what I thought I knew. Um, and what really surprised me is of about probably 30 people in the class, a good 20 of them nodded their heads and w participated in the discussion and knew what they were talking about from their own experiences. Now, these are graduate students at Stanford. Okay, this is, this is not what I'd expected. So I thought, well, well okay, you know, there's something else going on here. Um, and then um, Esalen Institute had a program called Esalen at Stanford. And because Stanford students couldn't go down to Esalen, they'd come up and they offered courses on weekends and speakers and so forth. And so I signed up for that. I went to a couple, no, I didn't sign up first. Um, a friend of mine who was a newspaper reporter in that class, uh, he was from St. Paul or Minneapolis, had bought tickets to a speaker coming to campus who I'd never heard of. And he couldn't go, so he gave me the ticket. So I went to hear this guy who I knew nothing about, and it was Alan Watts. <laughs> it's like, whoa! And this is the very erudite, scholarly British clergyman philosopher talking about how Eastern Western philosophies were alike and the effect of psychedelics. I thought, wow! I mean, this, I was really impressed with that. Um, although I didn't really go, you know, at that point, sort of, it was an interest, but I didn't read in the field, and I, you know, I was working on my dissertation, so I didn't have a lot of time. But I was doing it on Maslow's needs hierarchy, and Maslow had moved next door to Mendel Park. Okay, so I called him and went over to see him. Wow. And um, he started me telling me about this new area that went beyond self-actualization called self-transcendence. And you can see the pieces are starting to fit together at this point. Um, and he wrote a couple articles for the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology. So I became a member of the society and subscribed to the journals. And he has he talked about the difference between self-actualizers and self-transcenders. What he did is divide self-actualizers into self ordinary self-actualizers and transcenders. So this, you know, got my... I recognized that, well, you know, here was this intellectual hero by Maslow talking about self-transcendence. So it wasn't so nutty. And then... Um, in the January 1970, um, through a, a couple friends, I had my first psychedelic trip up at Lake Tahoe. Beautiful wintry day in Lake Tahoe. Um, and my, a lot of people sort of get into the perceptual aspect of it. Very, you know, I mean, it was fun watching the clouds rolling overhead and I was sitting at the edge of the lake. Beautiful. But what I realized, there's something really interesting here. This is not just about perception. I mean, something... Well, see, I'm interested in psychology, so I think, well, what does this say about the human mind? And I was an educational psychologist, so that sort of got me going. So that fall, that's when I came to Northern and started to teach. And um, I didn't um, include transverse. Well, I was editing a book about called Four Psychologies Applied to Education, <clears throat> and the fourth was um, transpersonal. Um, but then, um, through a, a very fortunate sort of situation, um, I ran into a woman who invited me to a, a conference in Iceland in 1971. And it was uh, held there because it was halfway between the United States and Europe, and the organizer lived there. And um, it was called Transpersonal Psychology and Psychobiology. But the speakers were Stan Groff, Joseph Campbell, um, Houston Smith, 
Walter Houston Clark, right, right, right. Bill Bill Richards was there with his with his wife, young wife at that time. So, so suddenly I realized that this was not just an area I could get into in my own sort of curiosity, recreational way. But I heard these really scholarly people talking about it, and that's where I realized, oh, this is okay. This is a direction my scholarship can go. Um, and so I came back that summer and started teaching a an expanded section on transpersonal psychology. And then finally, um, in 1981, I got that course going. So it's all these sort of lucky her- circumstances that I just sort of bump into. There's no real, uh, you know, organization to it. It's just good luck. That's great. And so your first psychedelic came just as you moved here to northern Illinois to start yeah, teaching. Yeah, my, my first exper- yeah, experience was January, or February, and I moved here in um, June or August. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so how did that realization of the scholarship here move into your first work? What did you start working on initially? Oh, um, well, I was editing that book called Four Psychologies Applied to Education. And also I came here without finishing my degree. So I finished my degree two years later. Okay. So wow. I came here in 70 and got my degree in 72. So that kept me busy. And then I was, you know, as you start a career teaching, it takes a lot of time to organize your material and change it and edit it. And so basically a lot of my time was best spent teaching. Um, and then when I started teaching the graduate educational psychology course, I had a section on transpersonal. And um, I wanted to to teach on psychedelics, but there wasn't really anything that came out. And then Stan Grof's book, Realms of the Human Unconscious, came out in 1975. And I started to use that um, as the, the transpersonal aspect of my course. And <laughs> by good luck, um, I had gone to a, a conference that the Menninger Foundation had every year called the Council Grove Conference. And it was held at a little church conference ground out in the prairie in Kansas with nothing else around. Um, and it was uh, it was an experimental place in the sense that people, professors, researchers could present ideas that they weren't polished enough to present at professional conferences but wanted to try it out. So there were, there were no procedures, no report on it. There were a couple of brief articles in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology, but never about the content of the conference. And Stan Groff was one of the regulars there, uh, as were some other people who had done psychedelic research. But topics like meditation, biofeedback, all the stuff that was like new and groundbreaking at the time, was sort of tr- those were like the roadshow tried out. And people would say, well, you ought to say this, or have you thought about this, or here's some research. So it was a cooperative group of around probably 45 people or so. So... Where I'm going with this is that one day we were having lunch and we started to talk about lucky numbers and seven is most people's lucky number. And one of the people at lunch said, um, well, the seven chakras, I represented that. And somebody else said, Disney, Snow White, and the seven dwarves are supposed to represent the chakras. So, well, that's kind of interesting. And I came home and we were using Stan Groff's Realms book in my class that night. And what should be showing down at the local DeShell Theater but Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay, so this graduate class went down there. And <laughs> this, the manager was there, you know, selling an occasional ticket. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of adults show up, buy tickets, sit together in the theater and sort of look at each other and nod. We talk about, you know, we'll see this perinatal experience and that perinatal experience. So that g- got me writing um, my original Snow White article. 
So that was, that was sort of the first really like applied transpersonal ideas that I did. That's great. So how did what's the what's the basics of your Snow White article? Um, there, there, I used Stan Groff's four levels view of the mind as an overall structure of the movie, but particularly uh, pay attention to the third level, the perinatal level. And, and the perinatal level you know, represents four stages of birth. And we see those particularly in Snow White when the huntsman takes her into the woods and then she has the experience of, uh, of fear running through the woods, struggling, apparently dying. She falls over a log and thinks she's going to die. But she wakes up in the in the sort of birth sequence the next morning, a beautiful spring day with birds and little bunnies and stuff. And they then take her over a, to, over a stream to the, to the dwarves' house. And um, that's basically the transpersonal level. And then here are the, she meets later on the four chakras, I mean the seven chakras. And um, throughout the movie, particularly um, in the latter part of the movie, mushrooms keep appearing. Mm-hmm. And people who are not into mushrooms don't notice them much. But people who are interested in mushrooms see them a lot. Okay, And those start to appear there. So I, uh, Stan Groff's view of our minds as a structure for uh, for the movie and then I give that lecture to my class and then have them interpret something and by going through that psychocritical interpretation they learn the structure stand structure of the mind and the, I mean some of them will use it on you know movies and TV shows but I've had people <laughs> a very one that surprised me a woman did it on buying a new pair of shoes for a dance and taking that through the series, and it worked. And wh- what I want them to do is to be able to recognize um, their own stresses and understand their own minds and sort of recognize that when they get stuck into a, uh, a, a cluster, a, a coax cluster, it's when simple or similar emotions sort of clump together. Like if they get angry, suddenly they remember other times that made them angry. And sort of this is part of stand structure of the mind. And they can then understand their own reaction to things. So it's a sort of very mild self-realization of how one's own emotions work or don't work and so forth. So that I think that helps them. As, and I know it helps those who've had psychedelic experiences because they can start to say, oh, this is what was happening to me then, or that's why I felt that way and so forth. So um, that, that, that got me going. And then since then, I'm going one way or another with psychedelics. Snow White as a mirror. Yes, that's well, that's a good phrase. Yeah, I yeah. should I should use that next time. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome to <laughs> it. Yes, it's a psychological mirror. Oh, yeah. oh, it's a psychodrama. Yeah. Oh, then I did one on um, that one with Bill Hurt about the uh, isolation booths, altered states of consciousness. Was that the name of the movie? Something like altered that. states. Altered states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and um, I'm have several years wanted to write one in Pink Floyd the Wall. It fits in just beautifully. Um, it's not so much, you know, during psychedelic experiences, the experiences don't happen in order, that you sort of bounce around from one thing to another. And Pink, the, sort of, the musician in there, bounces around. Sometimes he's in a hotel room. Sometimes he flashes back to childhood experiences. Sometimes he's in a very symbolic uh, stage um, we're all bricks in the wall. You know that scene where the kids move along, okay? That's sort of very perinatal stage. And the, the ending, the animation of cartooning is very powerful, um, perinatal and transpersonal. 
and then he finally breaks through the wall, and there's a little bit at the very end of, instead of the sort of hard driving aggressive music of very calm, serene music, where apparently you know it, it's worked like a psychotherapeutic experience, and we see kids kind of cleaning up, cleaning up after World War II. Mm. But but that's a, that's a very powerful movie. Out of curiosity, do you get lost a lot watching pop television and children's books and stuff, just starting to break them down to their archetypes and their um, pieces? I don't know. In fact, I just I I bought a copy. Jan, uh, Stan Groff, by the way, illustrated a child's book. Yeah. Um, and I bought a copy to take with me to um, to California to Oakland, but it didn't arrive in time. Mm. So I've got it up. Actually, I got it up in my room now. Um, but yes, we do. Or my wife and I will be sitting there. Sometimes we look at each other and say, "Oh, BPM two, BPM three, yeah, right." I mean, um, that's great. You know, Aldous Huxley has a really great children's book as well, "The Crows of Pear Blossom." It's very Crows of Pear Blossom. I believe that's the name. I found two copies oh, so far in okay, my life. Thanks. Yeah, they're dark, but oh. that's because he had honest eyes for the world. I believe. Oh, but, thanks. Good. Yeah, wow. they're they're really cool. Um, yeah, because I've, I've, I've really loved your Snow White idea since I heard about it. I mean, these mirrors seem to be everywhere. You just have to yeah. choose which one you Once you, once you start thinking that way, you sort of notice this stuff. And you can appreciate other people in your life. Hmm. That this person is just having a BPM2 experience. So, you know, feel sorry for them, but it doesn't mean, you know, something really terrible. Yeah. Um, well, and just a side note then, have you delved into Tarot much? Has that been, any, been of much interest to you? You mean Walden Tarot? No, the, the Tarot. Oh, the, the tarot. The no, I haven't. No. Okay. I had a, a friend who used to do a lot of tarot reading. In fact, we invented a reading called the Stanislav Groff reading, where we laid out the cards according to his view of the mind. I mean, it didn't go anywhere, but yeah. she and I did it together. And it works out um, as well as regular tarot. Yeah. Ah, huh, that's interesting. Um, and I wanted to ask about some of your other work because I think the book you pulled together, Spiritual Growth with Entheogens, uh, Psychoactive Sacramentals, I think it is such a well put together essay, collection of essays on this stuff. It's just I find very personally challenging and insightful in all these different directions. Good. A lot of the credit goes to Bob Jesse, because you know the Council on Spiritual Practices originally did this. This came out of the conference we had in 1995, um, and it, it was called um, Psychoactive Sacramentals. And that current title is is the new title for it. It's the same materials. Um, Slightly changed in the way it's presented in the book, but the, but it's all the same material, and um, yeah, that came out of that conference that we we held a conference um, in Valambrosa um, Conference Center in Menlo Park, nice. uh, um, and um, that's what really got me going on the um, entheogenic use of psychedelics. By the way, I reserved the word entheogen for the spiritual religious use, not as a synonym for psychedelic. So oh, I, wow. talk, I talk about the therapeutic use of psychedelics, the entheogenic use of psychedelics, and now the ideogenic use of psychedelics. <clears throat> Bob um, wants to, or at least I think he still wants to, use entheogen as a um, synonym for psychedelic. That includes MDMA as well? Yes, but, but it includes different uh, types of experiences. Like the ordinary perceptual stuff is not entheogenic in the spiritual sense, but it is psychedelic. Or experiencing, you know, one's unconscious is not necessarily entheogenic, that is not spiritual religious, unless you get into that part of the unconscious. So I would save entheogenic for getting into the religious, religious spiritual part of the unconscious. That makes sense, especially because it, you know, 
your background in education and psychology and the mind, it's it's really awesome to see how much you, as a college professor, you've spread that out to something much more spiritual and uh, probably a little bit edgy for any university to say, oh, no, these aren't just good therapy tools for PTSD. Yeah. These are also old ways to get in contact with the one, whatever. Yeah. Well, I'm in a, I'm in a men's group at church, and they're actually quite interested in this. I think they think I'm a little off, but it's a very liberal, open-minded group of people. Um, in fact, I'm getting ready to give my Snow White talk there in another two or three weeks. But we watched um, the videotape of um, Roland Griffith's uh, TED Talk, and that, was, that impressed them. And I talked a little bit about um, my idea of uh, mind apps and and that this is something. And then they understand it. So I'm, I'm lucky to be uh, in a very liberal church group. What, what denomination? Congregational. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Uh, wow, getting to speak at your church, that's kind of like hitting the big leagues, isn't it? Well, it's just, I mean, it's just a little men's group. It's not a big yeah. lecture. You know? Yeah, but that's yeah. Uh, that's exactly how to – the coming out of the closet that seems to make the difference. And what was that like for you, being someone on a university, eventually coming out of the psychedelic closet? <laughs> well, I was worried before it happened. I bet. And when it was happened, I was disappointed. <laughs> um, well, um, Grinspoon and Bacalar, um have a book called Psychedelic Reflections. It came out in 1982, and they asked me to write a chapter for it. Um, and so, you know, I thought, well, okay, I wrote about my experiences and what I thought psychedelics would be useful for. It's the la- almost the last chapter in the book. It's called New Learning. And um, I, I was worried, you know, before the book came out, you know, I mean, what will my colleagues think um, and so forth? Um, and the book came out, no response at all. Okay. Now they probably didn't read it because of the title, and they probably thought we knew it all the time anyway. You know, so so I mean that was a, that was a relief in its own way. But it was uh, um, I had a little bit of, of flack across campus when I first offered my course. Okay. Um, the, the course was one of those one-shot directed readings in special topics, and you know all those each department had its own name. And so, mind, I was that time was called psychedelic mind view or psychedelic, no, psychedelic research. I found later that the word research was scaring away people who were afraid of math. So I, so I changed the name to um, psychedelic mind view, and then it became Foundations of Psychedelic Studies. But anyway, um, to recruit people for these sort of one-shot courses, you have to put up posters all around campus. So I you know, walked around all these university buildings and put them up all, all over the place. And two days later, my assistant department chair got a call from the assistant provost asking whether this was an appropriate course for a university to be teaching. Um, and my department chair asked me, and I got on my, <laughs> my self-righteous high horse, which I've tried to explain to people that that's not a good position to get on to. And I... I um, Rather than backing down, I wrote a letter to the assistant provost and told him, you know, well, the paperback edition of Psychedelics Drugs Reconsidered came out, and it has a 40 pages annotated bibliography. And I know what an annotated bibliography is. It takes an enormous amount of work. It is really good. And basically, when I want to look something up, I always go there. It's my... And they... um, Anyway, so I photocopied this, and I may have sent some other stuff to him. And I, my my high horse letter was, um, 
It was my understanding that the decisions on what should be in the department's course is to each department, and it is the standard university procedure. I said, if he wants to talk about this, I'd be glad to talk about him at an open meeting of the university council, which is representatives from every department. Well, every department is going to d defend their department's right to decide what to teach, right? So, I mean, he would just get smashed, and he knew it, right? So two days later, my department chair got a call. Who, he said, I heard from the assistant provost, and somebody just wondered. That's why I was asking. <laughs> now, turn, then he left, the assistant provost, us, and he came back a couple years later as our president. <laughs> and Tom Riedlinger, you know, the Wasson scholar, said, they know they've got a bulldog over there. <laughs> okay. And, and, uh, and I think my colleague sort of agreed to let me teach it. I mean, he's not hurting anyone, kind of, you know. Mm -hmm. And it would bring in some students. And I, and I brought a couple of graduate students who were, became doctoral students. Um, but basically, I mean, they sort of let me go my way. And, you know. And uh, college campuses are quite... Um, open to new ideas, and surprising to most people, education is one of the departments that's most open, because you don't have to believe, you don't have to be a barbarian if you're in sociology, you don't have to be a Jungian or whatever, in psychology. As long as it works, it's okay. And people don't care where it comes from, because it's a practice-oriented group. So mm -hmm. if some good ideas come out of psychedelics, they don't care, you know, if it works. Um, and, and I just basically had a lot of tolerance. And I didn't um, proposed the course until I had tenure, and I don't know if I would have had the guts to do it before tenure. So that's an unanswered question. So so anyway, that's how that got going. And then it moved little by little. Um, I would start teaching it in the honors society, or honors program, and then it became only an honors course after I retired. And um, the honors uh, program, by the way, is just you know up at the next corner, and I lived about half a block up. So I can walk, and you know, in any university, not being able to look for a parking place is a real privilege. So I could teach the course without looking for a parking place, and just walk down there, and then walk home and have lunch. So it was really handy, and as I said, a good, you know, good bunch of bright students. Yeah, yeah. for a lot of years too. You got yeah, to see yeah. the best of the best interested in this. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that must have been really helpful for sharpening your own ways of communicating this to not only students but to your peers. Yes, yes, it's very handy because I'm talking to people who are intelligent but don't know the information. Yeah. Okay, and um, and and they're willing to ask good questions, and then you know that's always nice. And um, the, well, um, Stevens' book um, on psychedelics, what's the name? Storming Heaven came out. Jay Stevens, yes. Yeah, Storming right. Heaven. So we used that when that came out. Wow. And and that's that great. was a, a wonderful sort of history, social background. And so that covered the kind of sociology, historical background stuff that was going on. So, yeah, that was a very good book. And um, let's see. Well, I, one year I used, well, after my book came out, um, Psychedelic Future of the Mind. And um, I don't know. I would sort of work books in and try them out and work them out over the year. Um, of course, never stand still. There's always something new. And, of course, with psychedelics, with this new research coming on, and then with this stuff online. Because, you know, when I taught it, only people who had computers were the Army and, you know, big corporations. You know, and now, you know, my syllabus includes every, every week one, you know, online thing to view and one recommended online. 
And so there's, there's just unlimited stuff. That's great. Is any part of your course available online now? The syllabus or some of the lectures? Oh, yeah. I have a, my last two years' syllabus are available at my website. Uh, my website um, is an academic one. It's www.niu for Northern Illinois University, academia.edu slash Thomas Roberts. And I have about 100 little articles or long articles on there, too. And my slides. But not the Snow White slides, but all the other slides. Yeah, it's a great resource for anyone. I was poking through it uh, the last couple of days. Getting ready for this. All, there's articles in all kinds of directions. Uh, because Dr. Roberts is working. He His new stuff is very exciting. The Psychedelic Future of the Mind book and then the Mind Apps mm-hmm. lectures about all these different tools that psychedelics represent and then all the other tools that we might combine with psychedelics. Yes, that's an idea I'm trying to get across to psychedelic people is that our interest is one of a whole group of what I call, uh, I'm calling the word mind app. Uh, and a mind app basically says that you can invent, just as you can write um, apps to go into digital devices, you, we, can, we are inventing apps to go into our minds. And just as you can do more things with your device when you install them, you can do more things with the human mind when you install mind apps. So psychedelics is a a family of mind apps. And then there's hypnosis and dreams and meditation and the martial arts, biofeedback, neurofeedback, vision quests, all that stuff. And I want psychedelics to see themselves as part of this larger whole. And so it's basically a view of the human mind in all mind-body states um, and all ways of reaching them. And, of course, we're inventing new ones all the time, and we're importing them. So this is a huge, uh, huge possibility. And the intriguing thing I find is that almost in every case, when somebody's using a mind app, they use just one mind app. But what happens when you write recipes of them and put them together in ways they've never been put together before? In other words, you would invite mind-body states that have never been invented before. And most of them probably won't be worth much, but some of them may be worth an enormous amount. So just like we've had synthetic elements in physics and synthetic chemistry and no synthetic biology, now we have synthetic psychology, okay, and invent new mind-body. And that's the idea I want to get across because almost all the people we know in psychedelics focus just on psychotherapy, which is definitely something to focus on. There's no doubt about it. That's the good beginning, but it's only a beginning. And it goes from there into religion and the humanities and then into mind design. And we're beginning the the process of designing the human mind, just like we design apps for for digital devices. That's fascinating. What what combinations have been most intriguing to the people you've worked with and taught about this to? None. <laughs> I no, not I, I, mean, I know there are I know well, well the meditation people have gotten into psychedelics. Okay. And psychedelics people have gotten into meditation. Yeah. Um so that's that's probably the one. But basically it's well, there, are, there definitely are people who combine them, okay? But usually it's, you know, do psychedelics and then later do meditation and then do psychedelics. So you go back and forth. Mm-hmm. But it's the combination that I find. And and I think of this as ingredients. And when you say ingredient, immediately people say, what are the various possible recipes? And there's an infinite number of recipes. So, um, yeah, there, um, this is this is... This is why I, th- I call it the, the largest intellectual project. It's not just using the mind in different ways, but inventing the mind. 
Yeah, because there are so many possibilities. The one that sprang to mind was uh, holotropic breathwork and psychedelics. Just, sure, yes. just a low yes, dose of mushrooms, yeah. as as deep as holotropic can take you. So, if anybody out there has any great mind app uh, combinations they found, write in and tell us. We would love to hear <laughs> what worked for you, because uh, it is so many possibilities. All the different types of classes of drugs. Yes. Uh, then all the other types of. Uh, experiences well there's there's transcranial magnetic stimulation now okay and what would that do with combined with psychedelics and let's say relaxation training or visual training and so forth so i mean the you see as an educational psychologist the big question is what's the main what's the greatest development of the human mind and how do we do it but it's mind not just in the cognitive sense but in all these other senses so this is an educational psychology question is what are we what is our mind capable of and how do we manage to become capable see that's where that education this is an educational psychologist perspective on psychedelic research and, and on neuroscience research for instance every week at least every week there's some good strong discovery made about the brain or the neurosciences and they, in, of course, they're interested to say, will this help LAS or Parkinson's or, you know, fears and that sort of thing, which is uh, the right question to ask. But then there's the question, when we can control that aspect of our brain, mind, or nervous system, what can we learn to do, not just solve problems and cure people, okay? So, so all of those things that are discovered aren't just treatments and possible treatments and future treatments, but they're future ways of learning. So, and that's what I find... One of the a real hidden treasure in psychedelic research is people aren't recognizing that. Because that's not their job. They're psychotherapists. What areas do you think are most ripe for improvement using a combination of these tools outside the psychotherapy? Well, it seems to be meditation and psychedelics. I mean, this is where some work has been done. Um, Stolaroff had an interesting idea. He thought in preparing people for psychedelic sessions, a good move would see if they like MDMA. And if they're comfortable with MDMA, then they can probably go on to psychedelic sessions. But if they don't like MDMA, then that's not the direction to go. It's clearly psychedelics are not for everyone. Um, and, and deciding who they're for and who they're not for is an enormous problem. Think of it in terms of freedom of religion. Okay, if people want to use psychedelics and theogenically, who has the right to determine that? Okay, there's all the church-state stuff comes in at that point. And just psychedelics are, have to do with law, biology, um, social policy, um, the neurosciences, um, religion, and other fields, and they all have their legitimate claims to the field. So how do we... Um, um, Hal Evans and I edited a book called The Psychedelic Policy Quagmire that came out a couple of years ago. And we're trying to point out, you know, the vastness of these problems. And we don't come up with a solution. We just want people to address the problem. And it's an ethical issue because people tend to become more... Now, if they have mystical experiences, they tend to become more altruistic and more loving toward other people. Now, is it fair to want people to do that chemically we like to we like to conv- convince people you know you should be a good person and help other people but is it fair if we if people use chemicals to become more altruistic if they know they're doing it that's one thing 
So, yeah, the, the vastness of these problems. And then there are all these intellectual areas. There's hardly a an academic department that can't be touched by psychedelics. Two ways. One, a thing to study. But what I find most intriguing is as a way of inventing paradigms. Because um, Benny Shannon, who's a cognitive psychologist at Hebrew University, took a trip to Brazil, and you can see where we're going with Brazil. He got interested in ayahuasca, and he's a cognitive psychologist, so he said, hey, what's going on here? So he did a lot of studying of ayahuasca from a cognitive psychological perspective and basically pointed out a lot of paradigmatic assumptions that cognitive psychologists make that don't hold in other mind-body states. So suppose people in other departments try psychedelics and see what happens. Of course, psychology would be one, but what about the social sciences or, or the arts? Because as Huxley says in, in Doors, you know, his appreciation for the art became richer and deeper than it had been before. So is this a method of teaching art appreciation? Now, I don't see Art Appreciation 101 students having lab experiences yet, and I don't expect to live that long, but the possibility is there. That's great, and I'm so glad that you waded into that hard question of the policy of who actually gets to administer stuff, who gets to take it, yeah. who gets their license to fly taken away. If you were in charge of a of a university, how would you like to see what what do you think would be a reasonable approach for a university to take around psychedelics? Ah, uh, professor's fantasy. <laughs> we probably all have those. Okay. <laughs> well, what I would I I think the way to go would be um, at a major university one that has a lot of resources, start a psychedelic center, which would um, have faculty from various departments asking the question, how can psychedelics affect my department, and then teaching in this in this sort of center. Um, and I think that you'd have to draw people from basically almost all the fields, particularly if you're going to use psychedelics as, as the sort of problem-solving, microdosing uh, approach because any professors might use that that way. Um, and one of my favorite fantasies is to, to imagine a very rich, powerful, well, very well-funded uh, foundation that will fund psychedelic classes and research in universities, and not j- including psychotherapy and you know medicine, but also in all these other fields. Now, anthropology, of course, is just wide open to this. I mean, that's one of the richest fields uh, uh, in terms of... Uh, well, psychedelics and psychoactive chemicals and all that stuff. So they're definitely there. But I could, but I would like to see, sort of, um, maybe probably like a, a three-rung process of giving awards to professors to develop psychedelic classes. First, have them just sort of write a letter of interest and talk about their background, and then select from those the best ones, and have a, a foundation. Then ask them to submit a more detailed, you know course syllabus, and it would have to include a letter from the department chair or dean saying they would be willing to have this course taught, so that academic problem would be taken care of, and then to fund both the professor and the department. Okay, say like $10,000 for the department to take care of administrative things and part of the professor's salary, and then $30,000 say to the, toward the professor to teach the course, and then develop uh, psychedelic courses in universities. So my course was a, a general interdisciplinary course, but each course would have its own particular areas. Um, well, Nessie Davino uh, at uh, Pacific Tacoma is, is sort of working along these lines in English. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's an example of what can be done. And of course, um, there, I would really, I would definitely want to include, you know, divinity schools, theological seminaries, and of course, law schools, medical schools, and you know, the professionals groups ought to get into this. So there would be, there could, you know, there could be hundreds, even thousands of different courses. And then what happens with professors when you have people working in the field? They need a publication and they need a professional organization. So you'd be like the English professors, psychedelic professors, and the anthropology psychedelic professors, and they each have their journal, probably online open journals, considering yeah. the way things are going now. Wow. Archi- so, architects yeah. for acid. Well, yeah, there have been a couple of architecture studies um, um, on acid, yeah. They came, back, they came out a long time ago. Yeah. That's right. Wow, that would, that would be a beautiful system to get more players in this game thinking about these things yeah the idea is to use those different mind-body states in all these different disciplines and of course we're just talking about psychedelics there could be centers you know for meditation studies and breathing studies and you know transcranial brain stimulation studies and all these sort of working together to develop the human mind fully because that's what universities are supposed to do is develop the human mind and when you expand the diary of the the design of the human mind to cool all these different mind-body states, then universities have to start developing and exploring and teaching those states and how to use them. So, I mean, basically, our educational system at all levels is what I call our default awake state, right? I mean, it's, uh, someone is intelligent if they use our default awake state well. You know, good vocabulary, they can, you know, compute things. But our definition of intelligence has to expand to include using all mind-body states well. And I call the ability to select the right mind-body state Mm. meta-intelligence. So, you know, if you're going to do a piece of creative work, maybe you want to, you know, microdose. Um, And so the question then becomes for, well, uh, coaches do this when they get their teams up. Right, they get them all excited, and they get the adrenaline going. And a good coach really uh, is is producing a different mind-body state in his or her athletes. Um, and so, I mean, this is just done through you know good rhetoric, basically. But um, the same the same could be done in any field using any any of these mind-body apps. So the question for every field is. What mind-body apps would be helpful in my field, and how do I go using them? And do I have a special, you know, methods course for graduate students? You know, methods in psychedelic um, mathematics. Sorry. It seems to be math to be with multi-dimensional stuff, right? Yeah. You know, and, and of course, um, um, one of the things that typically comes out of psychedelics is the bi- ability to visualize, like Kerry Mullis developing that PCR technique. It was a visual ability. And what I find intriguing about that is he had psychedelic experience, developed the ability to visualize, and then transferred that skill back to his ordinary state. He did not have his insight while while doing psychedelics. Now, there's all this question of transferring abilities from one state to another. And there's an evidence, evidence that that can happen. And we all have this happen, like when we wake up in the morning and we know we've dreamt and can't remember the dream. And then suddenly, in the middle of the morning, the whole thing would download and we remember it. For me, it's around 10.30. Okay, so, so there's transferring information from, from, well, not known in an unconscious state to known. And I think um, one of the ways to get into this is, I think, of the way to characterize a state will be 
um, the default mode network. And once we sort of concentrate on that, this will be sort of the the basic feeling. We'll put the default mode ne- default mode network. Um, I explained it. It's like being in a car and the engine's running, but it's in neutral. So we're in our mind, but it's not thinking about it. It just it's in neutral, just sort of floating around. That's that's the default mode network. And I suspect this will be characteristic. The way of characterizing different mind body states. We'll start with the default mode network. And work if you can work out from that. That's great. Actually, that leads into the the last question I I really wanted to ask. What would your advice be to anyone out there listening who wanted to start exploring these mind states using these different mind apps and psychedelics? Oh, no, let me start by saying that one of the uh, articles in my website is, um, well, psychedelics looking for graduate programs. Okay, because I get people emailing me say, you know. Can I go here? Can I go there? Where can I study this and so forth? So it's basically how to find programs that are receptive to you in psychedelics. Now, oh, you, you were going to ask? Um, what what your advice would be to oh. maybe a young person who came in or a person hearing about this for the first time on using these mind state apps, including okay. psychedelics? Okay. Whenever people write to me, the first thing I will say is stay legal. Okay. And because one, you will end up in jail, but the rest of us will miss your entire life work and our, the field will be less because of that. You know, you'll be sitting in jail instead of doing research or, re- or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. So stay legal. Um, and then I think the thing to do is to, you know, ask yourself, what about psychedelics or meditation or whatever it is that interests me most and follow that? And, and because when you're following your natural interests, your unconscious is on your side. Because it will notice, you know, when you're interested in something, you notice it here and there, or somebody will say a word and it'll pop out of a conversation, or you happen to hit a bit of news items and it'll have to do with it. So follow your natural interest, whatever it is. Uh, now, mostly the people who are interested in psychedelics now are in the psychotherapeutic aspect, which makes sense. That's where the progress is being made. But whether it's anything else, it just find out what your interests are, and um, as you burrow into it, look for l- links to other interests. And the funny thing about specializing is when you, when you really dig into specialization, you suddenly find that your specialization is linked to all kinds of other stuff. So be aware of those links and tell yourself, I'm going to follow this link, or I wish I had time to follow this link, but I just don't. And you have to be realistic about that. Uh, Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for all your work. Um, We'll link to all the books um, and and your stuff in the program notes. And it was such a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Roberts. Well, thanks for coming by. Thanks again for listening to Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Do us a favor. Go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating or review. Tell your friends. That's how you can really help us out. Thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, Joey Witt for the intro music, California Smile for the outro music, and Brian Norman, who produced the show. 